0: Hi everyone, welcome to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Minute, the daily podcast where we have spent the last 94 days watching the 1990 live action Turtles movie, one minute at a time. Now, we are done with that part of the show and we want to thank everyone who listened uh, for, you know being a great fan and engaging with us on social media. But today, we have something really special for you. A big surprise. We haven't really let this cat out of the bag yet. This is our our holiday season gift to our audience. Uh, I have three other co-hosts that are going to help me announce this. I have Chris here. Hi, Chris. Hi, Scott. And I have Rachel Gatlin here. Hello. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year and all that good stuff. And I have Adam Sheehan. Well, hello. And guys, you know this, I know this. Uh let's let's tell everyone. Today we are interviewing the director of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mr. Steve Barron. Hello Steve. Hey. How are you? Very good. We are <laughs> I hope you can tell by Chris's uh, manic squealing that we are very excited that you're here with us today, uh skyping in from Are you in England? Are you in Ireland?
1: Yeah, I'm in London. Yeah.
0: Oh, you're in London. Excellent.
1: I thought that, sque- um, that squeaking was feedback from the Skype, actually. But
0: <laughs> nope, nope. That's a human sound. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a wide range of noises. You'll hear them all today, I'm sure. <laughs> all of them. Um, but yes, we're so excited that you could join us. We've we've been talking a little bit back and forth for a couple of days now, and we have been watching this movie so intently for for months now. We have we have nitpicked every. Instance, we have we have found many many things we love. I don't think we've found many things that we we dislike with this movie, and uh, I think we all have come to the conclusion that this is just it's aside from the fact that we're turtle fans and we love it as a turtle movie, it's just a a great movie. So you know, c- congratulations on this movie you made back in 1990.
1: <laughs> well, thank, you. thank you so much. That's uh, that's really nice of you, um, and you know, obviously. Very complimentary, Um, and uh, yeah, it was for a lot of. It was actually a lot of fun, mostly to do. There were some struggles, but it was a lot of fun.
0: Ooh, we're definitely going to want to hear about the fun and the struggles. But uh, I guess we'll jump right into this. Um, Have you had a chance to listen to? uh, Probably not. I'm assuming the answer is no. But have you had a chance to listen to any of our podcast?
1: Yeah, I heard. I heard one, and I can't remember what minute it was. It might have been minute sixty something or. I'm not even sure, and uh, um, uh, and it was uh, yeah yeah I I was I haven't heard the these uh, minute by minute I gather there's a few of them.
0: Uh, there's there's I think seventy some odd of them at this point.
1: Yeah, wow. that's about right. We got carried away. I mean, we
0: haven't done them all. We didn't oh, do yeah, all no, seventy. No. There's this is the only one
2: that we've done.
0: And they're not all about Ninja Turtles. But, uh, well, thank you for listening to, to one episode of our show. That's certainly flattering. Um, but I, I hope that you uh, uh, understood the, the devotion that we have to this film. So we're going to ask maybe some, some pretty deep questions. If there's stuff you don't remember, granted, it was, God, Is it? it help me with math. 27 years ago?
1: Yeah, it was 89. So, uh, think, all right. Yeah, is it? No, it's more than that. 28?
0: 30-some-odd? Anyway, math is not my strong suit. So, we're just going to say it was a, it was a while ago. So, if the memory is foggy, that's okay. Um I guess the the best place to start is where did you uh come into Ninja Turtles? How familiar were you with this franchise at all maybe um before this movie landed on your doorstep? Were you aware of sort of the fandom or how how did you become aware?
1: Yeah, it's uh it, it really I didn't I didn't know of it. It was a time I think in 88 when uh, when the comic book was out in the universities and uh, and get, getting a buzz the uh, the older comic book the early editions. Um, right. And uh well, I just uh it was actually Anton Mingella who is a, a, a was a wonderful director he's passed away sadly. Wonderful director, writer who I worked with on a, a Jim Henson TV series called The Storyteller. And that was uh, for NBC, and and um, we um, uh, we worked with creatures at uh, with Jim Jim Henson's Creature Shop, and mm. we did uh, all kinds of sort of, of of fairy tales of dark early European folk tales, and uh, a lot of those involved magical half men, half hedgehogs, uh, roosters that spoke, <laughs> uh, all kinds of all kinds of uh, magical creatures that we 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 made. Using animatronics, Uh, we made them come to life and use their puppeteers and everything. And then um, it did really, it did pretty well as a series. You know, I remember this series. Yeah, and uh, it uh, John Hurt was the storyteller. And um, after after we finished it, um, that must have been eighty seven. Actually, I you know I got to know Jim Henson a bit, and uh, and then. Uh, and Anthony Minghella, who who was the writer on it, um, and uh, really really got on well with him, stayed stayed very close, good friends, and uh, he had written a play called Made in Bangkok, based on, on an experience in Thailand, and uh, he uh, he had been approached for rights to that play by Golden Harvest, the uh, Hong Kong based producers, and. Um, while he was in their offices uh, i think in the london offices uh they were they were saying we've also um we're gonna uh we just bought the rights to this comic book uh teenage mutant ninja turtles for a movie and um we not you know we don't quite know how to make it but uh um what do you think and he said well you've got to look at the storyteller that, that steve did and uh worked with henson's creatures and and things and 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 look at look at that um i think it'd be really good for your project and uh they said they were going to film it in hong kong and it was going to be made for a a couple of million dollars and uh it was uh but they they felt that maybe a western director would be good for it um Ah. and that's how that was the origin of it really and uh uh they then contacted me and and said well how do we how Do we do it? Do we do we draw? Why don't we do it? A cartoon, uh, the the the, the, the turtles are cartoon and the rest of the people are live action. And I wasn't
0: kind of like a Roger Rabbit thing, yeah.
1: And oh, I, I oh, interesting, yeah. I wasn't keen on that at all. And, and that, <laughs> but I, I think that there was a way of doing Maybe. that, there was a way of doing that in Hong Kong for a few million dollars, you know. So, um, and I said, no, no, you, you, this is this is gotta we gotta believe it and um, we've got to use. Henson Creature Shop. They would do an amazing job of this, and uh, you know. um, So. uh, I mean, can
0: can I ask you? You know, when when this was brought to you, you had mentioned that it was you were kind of singled out as a guy who might be able to uh, help out with this based on your work on the storyteller. What what attracted you to this project? What what about? Did you get a script or did you just hear a treatment?
1: No, just uh, just the comic books, just the very the first edition graphic novel.
0: Now, did you read that before the movie came to you, or was that something they kind of handed you and said, "This is what we're doing"?
1: Yeah, this is they 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 sent that. I never I'd never read that before. Um, I'd never heard of it, and I thought it I thought it sounded <laughs> so so mad and different. And
0: <laughs> You're not the first person that has has mentioned that this. The title alone is kind of ridiculous.
1: Yeah, but it it I, that was the you know one of the big attractions for me because as soon as something comes along. That you feel you've never seen before or never heard of that was my you know criteria for looking for further work to do or further things to do it was um it was very much have i seen it before can it be unique can it can it be different can it can it really uh you know change a bit of thinking and um be something we haven't seen done that way or whatever so hearing that title immediately i thought well that sounds interesting then i saw the graphic novel (laughs) and i thought well this could be this could be really good as a movie because it it is so out there and yet it's got lots of heart and cute and um, and tons of relatable things teenage growing up you know all all yeah. the things all the things it could have it seemed to it seemed to have so it was uh, it got so it's- pluses lots of ticks
0: Nice. It's it's interesting to me that you you hearken back to the comic book because this movie is there's I mean, we went through minute by minute and we can almost nail, you know, frames of the comic book up on the board and say this is, you know, from this book and this scene is from that book. Um, but coming in nineteen eighty nine, sort of the big thing, at least in the States, as far as Ninja Turtles goes, were were the action figures and the the animated cartoon, which was very silly, very oddball, kind of like, you know, kitschy, uh, breaking the fourth wall kind of humor it wasn't this it, it wasn't at all like the comic books so um it's surprising to me that learned that golden harvest was coming to you with this franchise saying we're we're going in the comic book direction of this rather than the tv series version um was was the tv series something that all was that was that brought up during filming during pre-production or any of
1: that yeah when it uh, what was the what was the first date of release on it because i think when so I've...
0: the the series came out in eighty seven It started airing in eighty seven uh, and the toys came along with it and the comic book i think started in eighty four uh just a, as a time frame
1: yeah i think i i didn 't see the the t v series for quite a while um it was it was really uh you know it was the franchise that was uh the, the, with the, its original creators and everything was giving the origin story and everything that 's what I was given really so um it uh, yeah, and then the, then the TV series, we were made aware that the TV series was on very early in the morning on a Saturday morning, was doing <laughs> starting to do really well. Kids were loving it, adults weren't awake yet, and uh, it was uh, it, it was something that was, was sort of growing, but it was a real kind of slow growth thing. It wasn't, you know, by the time we made the film, by the time we were shooting the film in '89, must have been. Uh, and we, after we developed the script and everything, it was the moment that everybody you know was saying that these guys are really big and uh,
0: ah, so you kind of got caught up in the wave as you were doing it. yeah, exactly. um fascinating. So you know that one of my questions was going to be if there was any pressure from from the studio or from I mean any, even the product placement or anything like that to be more like the cartoon, but it sounds like maybe that wasn't very much of an issue.
1: No, uh, because there really wasn't a studio, we were kind of working pretty much in the dark we were I was given it by Golden Harvest to go and do it basically and uh, you know there wasn't people at that time as long as we you know the money wa- wasn't a big issue, and I was helping sell it, so we were mm-hmm. kind of doing it without a studio. We had gone to cannes I think in eighty eight and sold pre sold the film as an idea to uh for France and for the UK and maybe Germany as well, um, and uh, but you know they they just liked the 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 wackiness of it, and uh, they we didn't have a US release at the time. We 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 were making it without that. Wow, that's fascinating.
0: That's, that's amazing, and it was it was New Line Cinema that picked it up. Were they the ones that picked it up for uh, the US release?
1: Yes. Yeah, they picked it up. I think it was literally about two weeks before we started shooting, and uh, Holy they, cow. yeah, they picked wow. it up as a kind of a very cheap deal. So This
3: thing kind of existed almost in a vacuum, like
1: yeah, yeah. We were, I mean, the the problem was the budget from what the Golden Harvest wanted to spend. Once I brought um, Henson's into it, the Creature Shop, obviously, the budget went up, and because uh, that was much more expensive, so we we were up at seven million dollars when we were making it instead of the three they wanted to spend
0: wow and it ended up around <laughs> what 13 and a half if i'm not mistaken right
1: well that's yeah <laughs> no not really i think you know by the end of the f- the, the film we we'd only spent seven but you know that that that's all an accounting oh. thing really it was about seven or eight million dollars really to make
3: that's amazing wow
0: uh, and it went on to gross quite a bit. So that was definitely a success. I think this was the most successful uh, independent movie of all time for a good number of years Yeah. Uh, after it came out, which is kind of a huge accomplishment for a movie about ninja fighting reptiles. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, certainly.
0: Um, I wanted to ask you, did you have any input on like the script or story development, or was that something that kind of came together before you got your hands on it?
1: No, no, we, we were given complete whatever we wanted to do there so i we developed it from scratch all we had was the comic books and uh, and how much i used of the comic book was was up to me or how much we've completely reinvented it and uh i really liked the central comic book of the of that first graphic novel a lot of that story so i i kind of basically tore those pages out of the comic Uh, That that we wanted to use, and I put them up on a board, and we were I worked first of all with one writer, Bobby Herbeck, and uh, he came over to London to work with me, and uh, put them up on on a wall, and just said, right, we need a story that link that gets to this and gets from this, but has another thread, and has a more uh, dramatic tension for to 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 work over three acts in ninety minutes and stuff, and um, so we put that uh, we put. Put that together, and then, um, and then uh, I f- uh, found a uh, an article about a modern day Fagin. I think it was in one of the U.S. newspapers. I can't remember which one, but it was about a, a guy. I think he was in Philadelphia who had all these kids out stealing for him, because he would then uh. give give them all <laughs> these Game Boys and all this stuff, and he, and he he would, uh, he, you know, he he would bribed them they were happy to be there because they're all runaway kids and things they were happy to, yeah. they were happy to be there because they would get stuff out of it and it was okay of... i
3: heard about that guy i think i think there's a, a studio around we're actually from the philly area there's a studio around here making it they've been making a documentary about that guy over the past couple of years i forget what i forget what his name was
1: yeah no i don't i don't remember it was only a little it was like five paragraphs in a in a, in a newspaper, and it just seemed like that—that that is our, you know, un, underbelly story, and uh, we could weave that in. Yeah,
0: I don't know if I've ever put that together before but the you you draw so much from the the origin the original comics that that thing about the foot soldiers being teenage runaways is very unique to this film. That's not something that we had seen. So I don't even think it hit me that that was an original creation of this movie. And we talked about the parallels to uh to Oliver and to the to the Dickens and stuff like that. That's fascinating. That's such a cool way to look at that and such a cool way to uh, present the foot clan idea. Um I've said numerous times, and I think a couple of the hosts agree with me that this is our, you know, hands down the best version of Ninja Turtles that's been out there. I, I honestly think it surpasses the comic books. I think it's better than any other reboot or anything that's come after it. And I think part of it is because of sort of the, the humanity that you laced this film with, the, the family theme and the, how each turtle is sort of like a, a really fleshed out character. They're not just, you know, different colored headbands all doing the same thing. Um, was that something that you really were, were trying to hammer home, this sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, the humanity of all the characters?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think uh, Kevin and Peter, Eastman and Laird, have done a great job at, at really beginning that, you know, really setting that characterization of all the characters in in it they, that's it, it stood above a lot of comic books which were kind of very two-dimensional characters that were around and and, and these ones were very sort of rounded and different and um i thought it uh, it was something that we just needed to enhance and and enlarge upon as we went into the story and uh, so yeah, it was it was definitely there, but we we kept it as a big priority. We kept it as a priority right through, the creature shop and the puppeteers. Everybody really worked on each individual character and tried to uh, to keep it keep it strong and big and uh, and right yeah, to the forefront.
0: Now I'm I'm going to lead you to a question that my co-hosts are uh, are are might groan a little at, but did you consider any uh, uh, backstory for any of the characters in this movie? Like, where were they before this, sort of the cameras turned on them?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure.
0: You guys, yeah, see, they know where I'm going.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we considered everything at the time. We, we definitely, uh, you know, we spent an, quite a number of months really kind of analyzing what we could do and what we had to you know, brush under the carpet and, and that sort of thing. What, what, what are you thinking?
0: Well, we have a couple of, of, of kind of crazy <laughs> theories that we've come up with for fun, one of which was fo- uh, floated by another guest host of ours that uh, maybe Casey Jones, the reason he's doing what he's doing is uh, a, a bit of retribution or revenge or, or dealing f- with the uh, – uh, we, we surmised it was the death of a son at a young age. Uh, which drove Casey Jones to a life of vigilanteism and isolation in the New York City streets. Uh, and we've come back to that idea that Casey Jones just somewhere has a child that's missing. Maybe the sports equipment that he uses to fight crime with actually belonged to his his child.
2: Because it was also like small bats, <laughs> small ball hockey sticks. Kind of like, that doesn't seem like the right size. And so that was kind of where <laughs> we went came, came from for that. It, it was uh, it was a bit of a stretch, maybe. Maybe it's bit bit kind of, a of it's a kind know, of theory that
3: comes up when you're watching a movie one minute at a time. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I can't remember going down that route, actually, but um, <laughs> it might have been um, it, it, it's a good idea. I mean, I think it, it could be there. I think there was a scene. Oh, all right. Uh, so. so I'm pretty sure there were a, was a scene or that was maybe not in the final film that, uh, that had a bit more backstory for Casey. Um where he's Ooh, that would be fun I
0: um well. I know in the in the original comic books it uh or at least not in the original comic books now in the in some of the newer comic books, they've made Casey a little younger and uh have hinted at some some father issues with him where his dad was uh, uh sort of abusive and put another layer to the character that way right um but the other person that I wanted to ask you about was the character of Danny um this is someone who has not existed ever before or ever since in any uh, Ninja Turtles iteration. And I was just wondering if I could get your thoughts on, on the character of Danny and the sort of his Genesis
1: in this film. Um, yeah, again, it's so long ago. I can't remember where we, uh, where we were coming from for that. Um, yeah, we wanted, I, I know it, we felt that there was a, there was a, a gap. A, a, there was a space to fill without him in the story. Um, and, uh, you know it had to be really i suppose he was to represent the problem which is fixing the fact that a foot are controlling all these kids to steal and making you know this crime wave massive across new york and mm-hmm. you, we needed somebody on the inside of that and well, uh, the pg
2: crime anyway
1: yeah yeah <laughs> and uh and he he felt like uh if we put him in there that would be uh you know, that, that would work. So that's where, where he came. He's, so he's
0: sort of the, the audience is into the foot clan.
1: Yeah. Into, into what's going on with the foot clan and the kids, um, the kids that are joined in. The, yeah.
0: My, my other question about Danny is, uh, is it intentional that he's the person that screws everything up for April? I mean, we, we sort of noticed as we were going through the film, and I don't know if we ever caught this on our, you know, whenever we watched the whole movie all at once, but when you break it down minute by minute between, Stealing money from her, and I think we've sort of assumed that he's the one that leads the foot clan to the turtle's lair and april's house, which causes april's house to burn down and yeah, them does. getting chased out and it's then
1: he
0: yeah it, like we make him a really unlikable character in this film for a good majority of it. he causes a lot of problems for people
1: <laughs> yeah well he's he's supposed to be a real bad you know he's a kid with a streak you know with a bad streak, so I think uh you know he wasn't going to be a a, a Just a goody two shoes amongst the. uh... So,
0: is there like the he's wearing a lot of like sex pistol stuff, and there's all this kind of punk rock aesthetic uh, that sort of swirls around him visually in this movie. Is that something that you consciously decided on, or is that something that set dressers kind of put a hand in? Where did that kind of visual thing come from?
1: Uh, That came from um, yeah, making him a a little bit of a, a a punk kid. Uh, it actually came also from the fact that I was going to initially, we were going to use Malcolm McLaren to do the music and he's uh, for wow. the film. And uh, in fact, he did the music on the, f- on the trailers that went in the cinemas. And uh, <laughs> oh, we, wow. And oh. Uh, that was going to be the, the, the basic score music was going to be done by him. So it had a real anarchy to it. And, uh, and then we were, we were then going to use other singles and, and things in amongst it. But uh, in the end, we didn't use Mal- Malcolm McLaren. But while we were – I was meeting with him and everything. I said I wanted to put a Sex Pistols thing on, on the front of uh, of Danny. And, uh, you know, he gave us permission for that.
0: That's awesome. That's so cool to learn that that's where that comes from. We've speculated about that, about where who the secret punk rocker on the film set was. Uh, yeah. tur- turns out it was kind of you <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: kind of yeah
0: um, that's awesome so you ended up going with with John Duprez for this film and we you know we have had so much to say both Adam and myself are musicians we've had so much praise for the music in this film it's so unique and it it hits all the right beats and like the, the Turtles theme is just anthemic and we actually you know use a, a version of it for our intro music on the show and all the the different character themes that show up and play with each other, the Foot Clan theme, and um, sort of one of our friends called it the turtle the mis- turtle mischief light motif, where uh, Casey Jones and Raphael are kind of tangling e- with each other in the park. There, there's just excellent, excellent music in this film. What what ended up bringing you to to John DuPrez? Is that a decision that you had your hand in after the whole Malcolm thing kind of fell through, or
1: well, I mean. Th- to be honest there was there was a uh, a bit of a clash of um of things that went on in post and uh i i had malcolm mclaren lined up to do it and i was i was editing it the film with um sally Menke who uh uh-huh. cut all of um, quentin tarantino's films reservoir dogs and all uh-huh. those all those and uh uh we were we were in post on the film and i won't go into the full details of it but um they uh I really wanted to go and shoot a few of the scenes that we didn't get to. We we shot for seven weeks and we really it was way too tight a schedule to do everything we wanted to do. And I wanted to go and shoot another couple of um uh scenes that we missed and I, I can't remember what it were, but they were things that I felt were very good for the story and the film and things and uh so I ended up uh sort of taking Taking the film to you know as my with my role as sort of producer as it were, um, taking it to uh, Katzenberg and Disney via Jim Henson who suggested I did it, and uh, um, that caused a real rift with myself and Golden and the Golden Harvest <coughs> folks, and they used it as you know a kind of a no we're not film we're not going to put any more money into it we're not going to put uh we're not going to shoot these missing scenes uh and uh they they you know they just basically wanted to to pretty much i mean we did a little bit more but wanted to patch it up as it was and uh you know and i think you know one of the things was the cost of malcolm McLaren, and you know so um i didn't really that you know john was their choice and uh, they, uh, although, you know, I think, he, as you say, you love it. I think he, they did a good job. It would have been a little different. Had, I would imagine had, so. Had, had, <laughs> had, had, had I got my way. But, uh, yeah, I didn't. Oh, man. But,
0: that would change. I, we always sort of, like, kind of discussed how, th- just the, the texture and the instruments that Dupres used for this was a little Princess Bride-esque. Like, it has a little bit of that kind of, vibe to it and that it's very unique like you know the turtles music when you hear it but man now i'm like i really want to hear what it would have sounded like too
3: <laughs> well yeah because uh, people always say that people always use the word dark when they talk about this movie like it, it had such a dark tone to it i th- and that the idea that it, it could have been so much darker musically that's kind of interesting like i'd love to hear that
1: yeah i mean it, it would, i don't think it would have been darker i think it it would have been just a little more unusual, I think. In in that, the music. I don't think you know it's not punk music. His Malcolm McLaren's album was actually fantastic. Um, Compose, you know, the Blue Danube and and massive, great compositions done by mm. incredible composers over the years, and he punked them up a bit, and uh, so it, it was like shaking up the. Institution a little bit which I felt the film was a little bit you know just shake, shaking up the uh, studios a little so I just felt it was on it was in line with that so it wouldn't have been dark dark and yeah the dark thing was a big problem that was another big that was part of the big issues I was having in post you know a couple of months into into the edit we'd got the kind of cut pretty much done but um, you know they were really unhappy with how dark it was and uh and you know they then that and that's the first time I'd really got. I'd had a few notes on the rushes and and said, is, you know, you, you know, why why is it so dark? And um, well, because it's you know it's down a sewer. <laughs>
0: have Have you read those comic books? You say <laughs> yeah.
1: they're pretty dark. <laughs> yeah, and I I also felt it help it would help you know with the characters with us believing you know, and with us searching into the blackness a little more and us looking in rather than being thrown it all out but they were obviously by that point very scared that nobody would come to see it. Well,
0: that <laughs> was unfounded apparently as this money made or this movie made some some good money. I you know as a kid it's funny because I don't think any of us thought of this movie as dark when we were children viewing it. I know for me it didn't sort of click until you know I was I was sort of aging out of I guess prime ninja turtle fandom that I started to really kind of view this movie more seriously. Um, because for, you know, as a kid, you know, I I think I was five when this movie came out, everything turtles is like, it kind of all gets amalgamated into the same sort of, uh, a pool. It's all kind of the, you know, colored headbands and weapons and ninja stuff. But this really sets itself apart in a big way by, by holding, you know, the tonality so close to the uh, original comics and keeping it dark. And, I think there's a lot in there for grown-ups. Like I think if I had a kid and I was showing them this movie in 1990, like I think I would enjoy it probably more than they would.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I guess the other question to ask is uh we haven't talked much about the the Jim Henson stuff. What you you mentioned you worked on Storyteller before this. Um how was Ninja Turtles kind of was it an evolution? Was there a lot of like steps forward in in technology and the way that the puppeteering works uh adam our co-host has done some some filming with puppets and has been our sort of resident puppet expert so i'm sure he's got a lot of questions about the puppet stuff too but can you give us kind of an overview of what the whole uh animatronic experience was like on the set
1: yeah it was um it was quite uh yeah quite advanced technologically i mean first of all jim henson was uh was very worried about doing the film and uh uh you know we had lots of chats about it and he he just felt that he'd never done you know coming out of sesame street and muppets and uh even the storyteller which was a bit darker um didn't you know didn't have people with knives and fights and ninjas and all that stuff so he was a bit worried about it and uh um but you know after after a while you know we said in stages we we because uh, i really thought if we didn't get him we'd be in big trouble and um uh, and you know it, it really because of the relationship he just said look i i just i just trust you on it and i told him the tone would not you know would just be no way no wane mean spirited and and uh and would uh wouldn't upset people obviously it, uh, I'm, right. sure, I'm sure it did uh it still had the swords and it still had you know, the I suppose the violent world around it, which some parents were unhappy with. Um, but um, anyway, we uh, he, when he when he embraced it and went into it, um, they got they set about uh, making uh, some new servos and some some things that moved faster than anything had moved in the animatronic world before mouth mouth and eyebrows and things that were just and i uh, had to be radio controlled and and he uh he really brought this this these ideas to it and his creature shop were a great team they brought these incredible ideas of uh of how to how to run these guy these things these i mean they were very heavy backpacks on on the actors but um they did so many different functions here i think he said to me once that uh, you know every movie you have a new technology uh and this movie we had nine <laughs> so so it was tough and um, they did a yeah they did an amazing job i mean we had you know it was all kinds of experiences when we were making it the actors it was so hot in those suits when uh when you have 40 pounds on your back and you know you're doing a bunch of takes and um having to move <coughs> from a to b and uh, obviously the fighting turtles were, were very lightweight comparatively. But um, the uh, yeah, the acting and chatting turtles were, were uh, quite a number. But they could go off. They could be plugged in or they could go off remotely. And uh, I remember there was one night, because we did quite a lot of night shooting down in North Carolina on a set that looked like New York. And um, I remember one night we, we had uh, a whole... Um, Seen to do, and each time we tried to do a close up of a turtle, the the uh, the face would go suddenly go from talking, you know, mouthing the words, to going completely nuts with one eyebrow way raised and and the lip curl, <laughs> the lip curl in the wrong place, <laughs> and then another one would freeze its face completely into a into a shock horror pose, and it was because the. The nearby base, the air air base, was coming in. They were coming in on a, on a number of different uh, um, operations were going on, and uh, they they were interfering with the radio control frequency, same radio control frequency. So the the airport, we had to, you know, we just had to deal with it. But
0: Uh, Chris, as as someone who lived on an air force base, I just want to I want to thank you for screwing up all of Steve's hard work.
2: <laughs> I didn't really have any choice in that matter. I was seven. <laughs> I, was, I was a little kid on base, but yeah, there's lots of signals, lots of lots of radio traffic, and I imagine that like those early early versions of trying to radio control all the all the servos for uh, for the for the turtles probably got busted I, I remember my dad was really big into uh, model airplanes, and we flew near uh, near the base that we lived at, and one time the plane just like fritzed. And just nosedived, and we're like, "What on earth was that?" And like some of the more experienced, uh, like uh, guys flying their planes, they were like, "Yeah, that's that was probably interference from something going on at the nearby base." Yeah. Wow,
0: I would love to see uh, uh, footage, man. That just of the, the turtle faces freaking out.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know where that is. Olaf. Um. The, all this stuff.
0: Uh, yeah, in a vault somewhere, or at the bottom of somebody's desk who knows um have you ever been in i mean it's kind of jumping ahead a little bit have you ever been uh uh, approached about doing like a a director's cut or like a bonus features or like a special edition of this movie is that something that's ever come to you the 30th anniversary
2: Uh, is coming up
0: or have you ever brought it to anyone else
1: uh quite a lot of fans have asked for it and uh contacted me over the years saying you know can't can't we do anything about it and uh yeah, I don't know why Warner's uh, didn't want to do um, a special edition, but they they never never did. Even though I know a lot of people tried to to uh, get one through, and I know Kevin really wanted to get one through uh, the system and 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 get one out there, but it never it never happened. And uh, uh-huh. the only thing I did was a a German DVD, uh, a director's commentary on a German DVD that came out <laughs> about four or five years ago. In in Germany.
0: Oh man.
3: Well, I know what I'm looking up on eBay. I know (laughs) it's
0: it's it's just past Christmas here, and uh, I wish I would have known to look for the German Ninja Turtles DVD for Christmas. (laughs) Um, it's it's just it's so cool. Like the movie is so good. I I have a saying that I've used that this film really had no business being as good as it was, and I I I'm thankful, and I think the fan community is lucky that we got someone who really took it seriously. I think it would have been really easy to do this movie silly. I think we've maybe seen that in the last couple of years, people trying to do some not quite so serious Ninja Turtle work. But this one is like, it's just, it's, it's perfect. It's the perfect mix of the comic books with apparently unintentional winks to the cartoon. Like there's things like April's yellow jacket and little things that sort of nod to the cartoon here and there, but man it's just it's such a well-crafted movie from the the lighting the the way that the scenes are set and shot there's kind of this you know dark smoky atmosphere to the whole thing which as a kid I think probably scares us you know the way that we want to be scared by our, our our bad guys and giant walking mutants but it also just it I think it like makes it look legitimate it doesn't look silly it doesn't look like a kid's movie you know it looks like a any other, it looks like Batman is what it looks like, honestly. Like, I compare it to Batman 89 a lot just because it's sort of got that same, yeah, noir almost. Is, I mean, is what were your sort of visual inspirations for, for the style of the uh, of what you were shooting?
1: Um, well, the inspiration, yeah, we actually, we all uh, went, went to see the Batman movie. I remember in North Carolina a few weeks before we started shooting, and um, we were myself and the DP, John Fenner were delighted that it was so dark because it was gonna, we knew it was gonna be a battle somewhere along the line. And uh, the, I mean, the, the rest of the inspiration really comes from Grimm's fairy tales. And I suppose, and, and, and those sort of storyteller, um, you know, early European folk tales, you know, in a way, I wanted to, to give it, give it some of that. And I also felt, you know, the, the grounding of, it. Th- I think with fantasy, like that, you know. You need to ground it. You need to earth it. You need to believe it. You need to, to, to live it. And um, that that was a, a definitely a, a way to do it. To put, you know. And and the other major, not so much influence. We weren't using many influences in the actual lighting style, except that, you know, we they've grown up in a sewer, and I wanted us to feel, like, and understand how they've grown up, and how they're growing up. Was obviously well, either. you definitely, you know.
0: definitely yeah, got that down. <laughs> <laughs> um, Everything looks so real. Like the puppets, they look. I, I've I, we've actually gotten in a couple of minor arguments among the hosts because I'm I am of the belief that I don't think there's a better way to do this movie than with puppets, and I think you even look at some of the CG stuff now, and and, and CG it looks great. Like I look at the Planet of the Apes movies coming out now, and they're amazing, but. To me, there's something about seeing the, the physical puppet and the way that light and moisture reflect on that. I mean, God, you guys put turtle, you put bruises on the turtles. Like there's makeup bruises on the turtle puppets, which are just, it's a genius move. Um, but I don't think you get that in some more modern, uh, uh, I guess, movie telling techniques, uh, special effects. So I don't know. I just, I love the puppet personally. I think it's fantastic. The,
1: the time we didn't have the option, but I just, I just knew you would. Um, believe them in their own in their own way and in their own world. And uh, you know, we uh, it just in fact, you know, the, I had a big debates with a creature shop about you know, first of all, keeping the eyes moist. So you know, because I felt that as soon as you had the moisture in, this, particularly the rat's eyes, you you would uh, believe them. I brought out this cat, this camera I've used for some years on a, many other things, called a snorkel camera. And there's a scene between. Uh, Splinter and Raphael and we were moving to within six inches of these of these puppets so you know the lens was going within six inches of them we can't we can't stand up but you know I felt you believed you just you really got under their skin in that way. and Yeah, uh,
0: it was very believable. And believe me, we've talked about the moisture a lot, especially as wet the movie rat. goes on on the Splinter puppet. Like, that is, that is a wet rat by the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even, like, over. we've we've we made a couple jokes about Michelangelo has, like, you know, turtle acne because there's parts of the movie where it's, like, you can see the moisture on the puppet and the skin, and it's, like, so real, and it kind of, like, it almost creeps you out a little bit. But they do look, they look very real in their setting and, and, and very lived in.
3: Um, and you said you were getting like, like pushback from the creature shop. Was that just for, in terms of integrity of the puppets, like the, the water would, would damage them or was that?
1: Yeah, there was a bit of, there was a bit of that, and, you know, because it was, it was a glycerine. It wasn't a water. The water wouldn't stay. So yeah. it was a sort of, sort of glycerine, which had a sort of an effect on the latex and it would mean they'd have to do repairs and things. Ah. Um, but so that, that was, that made it a little difficult. Um, amazing. There's there's a couple questions
0: that oh sorry <laughs> again I'm suffering from from a little bit of fragmented audio
3: yeah I think there's a, a tiny bit of a lag so I'm sorry if it sounds okay. like we're we're cutting you off <laughs> we're we're not actively trying to be rude it's you know <laughs> that kind of communication across oceans can only be so
1: no problem.
0: If, if nothing else, I imagine this is probably somewhat what it felt like to work with giant turtle puppets for several (laughs) weeks. Yeah. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Um, I, we're, we're approaching an hour here and I, I kind of want to start getting towards a wrap up a little bit. Um, Chris, Rachel, Adam, do you guys have any burning questions that you want to ask Steve or anything you want him to address before we kind of go into our wrap up here?
2: Yeah, sure. Like, um. Us talking about the uh, the puppets and the face sculpts. I was, you know, there's something that we we noticed uh, throughout the film. It seems like did did each turtle kind of have like a default or sort of emphasized emotion, like a certain look to them. Like it, like some of them, uh, oh, ha- like like Raphael seemed to scowl better. Like Michelangelo's had sort of a cuter look to him. Like there was there was something about like the face sculpt. Uh, it seemed were you trying to like emphasize certain uh personality aspects or, or emotions in them
1: yeah yeah very much so yeah the sculpts were very non interchangeable they they were like each one was for for that character and uh Raphael's sculpt is very different to michelangelo and um so it would uh it be something that we uh we 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 worked on and uh i can't remember who sculpt and I wonder what it was Ron Muick actually uh, at the Creature Shop. He was at the Creature Shop for some years and became a, a, a legendary artist, actually, a contemporary artist. But the sculpt was all important. Getting that right was, you know, the first big, big step in the evolution of the characters.
0: Wow. Awesome. Uh, Adam, how about you? Anything you want to jump well, in the- on?
3: Really deep diving into this movie, when we really get to, like, really pick apart kind of the details and and kind of do shot by shot, there there were a couple things that popped up in this movie that I just couldn't wrap...
0: Are you going to ask him about the noids?
3: Well, (laughs) (laughs) maybe maybe next, but... uh, There was a couple of shots that just flat out confused me on a on a how on earth did they do that kind of standpoint. The one in particular is there's a scene where they're sitting in April's apartment watching the the newscast and um, Donnie makes some crack at Raph like, oh, I think he's blushing. And Raph throws his sigh into the floor. How on earth did did you guys pull that shot off? Like, I, I watched that over and over again because it looks like it's actually being thrown. But, I mean...
1: Obviously it's such a little detail. I'm pretty sure that was along a wire. Do you see it do you, ah, okay. do you see it rotate? I can't remember. Or does it go in a straight line? Oh no. I think I can't it might remember. just go
0: in a straight line. I'm not sure. Yeah. we have to watch it again minute at a time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I think we could just watch that minute for a second. No, or no, I think don't, you don't see
0: Raphael yeah. throw it and then it cuts to the shot of the side going straight down to the floor. So
1: Yeah. So that, it was just on a wire? Yeah. Yeah, a little, very tiny little wire, um, and uh, it, which goes right through the center of the Psi.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, see, that I thought sense. it was like all this fancy, like reverse film kind of thing. All right, that, <laughs> the, it, man that bugged us. That that's really such a straightforward
3: us. answer. It, it, I, I had a feeling. I'm like, I'm gonna ask him this question, and it's just gonna be like, it, it was whatever. And
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I haven't seen it for many years, so uh, I should have a probably see it before i totally sign sign off on that but uh that's what i think it was (laughs) i I can remember we definitely use that method in certain places in the film down the down the wire with the sire i remember that awesome
3: all right and and g- kind of going back on what Scott thought I was going to say, <laughs> so there was a lot of Domino's um, product placement, specifically, specifically the Noid was how did that how did that get worked in? Like, did were you guys just like given a bunch of props and said like, here's a bunch of Noids, toss those in, or was that just kind of a, a <laughs> last minute thing?
1: What what are the Noids? I, what are Noids? Is it a little gift that comes with a pizza, or is what what? Where, where do they come from?
0: It was the Domino's pizza mascot uh, in the 80s was this character called the Noid who would go around trying to steal pizza. And all we see in the in the turtle set just scattered in the background. They're not part of any, you know, grand piece of scenery, but they're just sort of like hidden away is our little action figures of this red guy called the Noid.
1: Yes, well, uh, definitely when Domino's came on and they came on very late into the proceedings or i remember it was very last minute and, I, and somebody came from Domino's. i th- i believe to the art department roy ford smith was a production designer and they probably gave him as much as he wanted to use of anything but uh yeah they were i remember they were they were kind of they were late and they were really glad they were in in the end because it helped them a lot
0: so uh, uh product placement we got that down uh any other questions we want to ask before we kind of come to our our grand finale here?
3: Well, I I have one.
0: Go for it, Rachel.
3: So hopefully we'll touch on, um, your music video career. Oh, I plan to. (laughs) I wanted to know
0: who is more difficult to work with musicians or puppets?
3: Oh, that's a big question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh, Puppets. Yeah. Puppets. Both. They're both pretty tricky. Musicians are, uh, can be tricky and can be wonderful, but, uh, and puppets are just a little more difficult in how you're going to move them around and how you're going to get them from A to B. But they do exactly what you ask, whereas musicians often argue. Awesome.
0: Um, that's good to know. <laughs> Man. Um, I kind of want to to wrap up here. You've been very gracious with your time, Steve. We really, really thank you for having us. I do want to just ask you a couple of quick questions, uh, and these are sort of personal questions that i i I would be upset if i didn't get out i am a huge michael jackson fan and you directed possibly one of the greatest music videos of all time and it was groundbreaking on a lot of different levels uh billy jean um what was the experience if you can just give us a little bit uh, of working with michael jackson on the set of that video
1: um yeah yeah michael Experience with Michael was uh, It was before the album came out uh, Thriller And uh, it was um, So I really hadn't seen Michael Dance or move around Or anything, the current Michael The, the Michael of this album and, and the 20, whatever he was, 21 year old um, Young young man And um, so um, It was uh, We spent the first day We went through the storyboards and everything uh, Like a week before we shot and he was happy with all the ideas, and uh, we spent the first day doing bits and pieces of his uh, of of the story with the video. And then, when the um, when the time came to do some of the singing, you know, he he had, we hadn't seen any rehearsals or anything, and he uh, he got onto the got onto the set, and I showed him which paving stones like lit up and which ones didn't, and he. Um, he didn't want to rehearse he just said i'll just do it and uh rolled the cam, roll- rolled the camera and uh by you know by what you see now you know he he just danced down this this uh wonderful magical uh sidewalk um with you know only the way that michael jackson can and uh you know blew it completely blew everyone away i remember the ip steaming up i couldn't really uh fathom what i was seeing in a lot of ways because i'd never seen wow. it before so it was a it was a great experience and he was awesome. he was, he was um, ch- charming and sweet and
0: fantastic and then kind of at the other end of the spectrum someone who i from everything i've learned hates being in front of a camera but is also one of my favorite artists Don Henley. You did the All She Wants to Do Is Dance video? Yeah. Was he just like he's he's always said that like i hate being on video. I'm not an MTV guy. Was that just tedious for you to work on that with him cuz he's just he kind of just stands there and sings. He's great at what he does but he was not a, a an on-camera personality.
1: Uh-huh. Um yeah, he no he was very collaborative I mean yeah he he just did what did, does did what he what he does but uh he he was really collaborative on this, the idea and and this this idea of of doing we were originally going to do a a uh, a kind of apocalypse now moment where it was about uh, you know the girls dancing for the troops sort of thing um but for various reasons we ended up uh building a set and doing a uh, bombed out disco but he was re- he was um he was good he was i mean he was really good to work with
0: awesome uh and and i mean we could go through i mean you've done a lot of amazing stuff in in music video and in films we love the movie Coneheads. it's another one that we've we've talked about and sort of off mic we'll we'll chat about with uh among the co-hosts and i mean you've you've had some great stuff is there anything that you're working on now or anything you 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 want to plug or let our fans know about where they can check you out things that you've been doing
1: um well the it's too early to plug it because it won't be out for another year but um i've i've just done you know what, what was funny is after all these years uh, when when we did uh ninja turtles it was um, it was a comic book film and at the time even though batman had come out and done really well uh, that was very right then, and they were nervous that that wasn 't going to do very well and superhero films had a bit of a mixed reputation, and uh, they, you know no one was really sure whether they, they that was a business that you could do much in and uh so but uh, obviously i obviously really enjoyed that that working with four teenagers and doing that experience and I realized you know that was thirty odd years ago, and uh, I realized recently that I had not even talked about doing another superhero movie after all these years until um a script came in uh last year and it was uh it was about these four very old superheroes living in an old people's home and uh they they were a superhero a home for superheroes who were no longer in control of their own powers because they were old and uh so that uh, that's what I've been working on in Dublin, we've been shooting. Wow. Uh, it's out, it's with Tom Berenger and Beau Bridges, and it's out uh, probably, yeah, it'll be another year from now. We're still in post on it right now. So that'll be, you know, a jump from the teenage years of four teenage superheroes to to very old superheroes.
0: Awesome. Um, I I do want to just say, Thank you so much for joining us. It has been amazing to get to talk to you. It has been uh, one of the great pleasures of our sort of entertainment, short entertainment careers here in the world of podcasting to get to talk about this movie for as long as we've done it. And our fans have been great and going along with us for the ride. And I think they're really going to enjoy this conversation with you. Uh, So once again, thank you, Steve Barron for doing this, for being part of Ninja Turtles Minute, and uh, we wish you all the best success in the future, and it's just been a real treat, man. Thank you so much.
1: Well, uh, my pleasure, and thanks again, you guys, for your enthusiasm and your, your love for this film and, uh, and, and just all your support over the years and uh i yeah i hope the recording comes out okay i'll I'll email it to you i think it emails from this app actually
0: thank you so much we'll let you go now have a merry christmas happy new year and all the rest okay
3: happy boxing day happy boxing day Happy. you
1: too bye bye guys
3: bye